So um, we have a threefold task this election season. I want to make some remarks regard, in the context of our national election. Um, the threefold task I want to start with is first I put down keep calm. And then when I saw that on paper, I challenged myself. I said, is that our task? Keep calm? I think God respects freaking out as much as he respects <laughs> keeping calm sometimes. And this may be one of those times. So I replaced keep calm with keep loving our loved ones and our fellow human beings who are not approaching this election with the same clarity of insight that we have been blessed with. Uh, second, be wise and pick sides. Be wise and pick sides. Paul in Romans says, chapter 12, let those who lead govern diligently. And one of the, if you're a manager or a leader or a teacher or in charge of something, you know you have to at times make decisions. You have to take sides. In a democracy, every voter is a governor. That's what it means to be, in some sense, self-governing. And so governing is making tough choices between available options, and we express that by voting. So be wise and pick sides. And then third, and this will be our focus uh, through the prophet Jeremiah today, is listen beyond the noise for what the Spirit is saying to us. Listen beyond the noise for what the Spirit is saying to us. So Jesus... Um, came in the tradition of the Hebrew prophets. He was quoting the Hebrew prophets. He sounded like a Hebrew prophet. He was immersed in the mentality of the Hebrew prophets. So the church of Jesus is always at our best when we're in prophetic mode. Um, now that means seeing what the crowd is blind to. So the revelation of the law and the prophets, the Bible of Jesus, fulfilled in Jesus, is the unmasking of the scapegoat mechanism. We've talked about this, that we tend toward rivalry as human beings and imitative violence. So conflict spread like contagion through groups and communities and nations. And we have this bad way of resolving these conflicts temporarily by projecting our own violent tendencies on a vulnerable individual or group called the scapegoat. And the all against all in a society becomes the all against one. This is the Bible's unique revelation to unmask this unholy mechanism so that we can separate ourselves from it. You know, I've, I've spoken to people of color, LGBTQ, immigrants, women, and they all feel less safe and more targeted as a result of this season that we've been in nationally. And today what I want to do is apply the message of Jeremiah, known as the bad news prophet. Uh, he's known as one of the exile prophets, actually, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and second Isaiah. And he was speaking at a time of contagious uh, rising contagious conflict in his community um, and I want to credit uh, Walter Brueggemann, an Old, Old Testament scholar I've been enjoying lately for uh, helping me uh, understand what Jer Jeremiah was up to. Jeremiah was speaking to Israel in the run-up to the destruction of Jerusalem in 587 BC. During it and after it, his writings deal with all those phases. Israel during this period had fallen prey um, 
to something that is faced by all blessed by God people perverting the blessing into what is called ideological exceptionalism. The mentality of ideological exceptionalism is since we are blessed, we are by definition good, don't tell me otherwise. Exceptionalism distorts our view of reality through denial. So we use our exceptionalism to block negative data that doesn't comport with it. Uh, corporations um, can believe their own marketing, right? And refuse to see what doesn't fit into their marketing image. Um, British Petroleum is the classic example of this. In 2000, BP uh, launched a $200 million campaign to brand itself as the environmentally sensitive oil company. Uh, the, the tagline was Beyond Petroleum. But their marketing, as so often happens, got ahead of their environmental responsibility. And actually, once BP adopted this brand, their environmental performance worsened after they adopted this campaign. Because violations of environmental standards actually increased after that. As the BP execs believe their own hype, they tended to deny evidence to the contrary because we are BP. We're the environmentally sensitive oil company. This is what many think led to the culture that led to the Deepwater Horizon oil spill. So in Israel, the chosen people promises uh, were first given to a band of nomadic former slaves. The promise to David about the monarchy of Israel, your house shall remain forever, was made before the monarchy was expanded under Solomon. David spent much of his early career on the run. There was even a phase during his kingship in Jerusalem when he was on the run as a king. Samuel, who was the prophet who anointed David king, um, had warned Israel not to organize as a monarchy in the first place. And the, the warning of Samuel is something to listen to. These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his courtiers. He will take one-tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and courtiers. He will take the best of your cattle and donkeys and put them to his work. You shall be his slaves. In that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. Don't do it. People wanted to be like the surrounding nations, and so they did it. It was cool to have a king, and that's exactly what happened. David gave way to his son Solomon, who built a massive temple in conjunction with an expanded temple uh, palace complex. Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines and all of their attendants. He created, in, in effect, an aristocracy. The Jerusalem elite 
that was, you know, benefiting from this whole situation took all the claims of promises, of chosenness, of being exceptional, called by God, uh, that were originally given to newly freed slaves and turned it into the ideology of exceptionalism. So that meant to fund the palace, the temple complex, the elite extracted whatever they could from the surrounding peasantry that lived in the surrounding villages all the way north up through Galilee. These peasants were under heavy taxation. The peasants went into debt and their debtors took their land. They became slaves without the title slave. Sounds a lot like what happened to people during the mortgage crisis, right? In 2008. Uh, then you add that, which happened to millions of people, lost their home because of decisions that rich people made, not taking any concern for the consequences. Millions of people suffered as a result of this and are still digging out from under that burden. Now you add to this the pre-existing state of American society. The pre-existing, for example, heritage of slavery. You know, the absence of any inherited wealth whatsoever among African Americans when they started off. Until the Civil War and many years later, virtually all of the land in the United States was owned by white men. This has had a huge effect on our black brothers and sisters, not to mention the ancestors of the original people that were displaced by European settlers, as they were called. Add to this the economic disadvantages of just being a woman, making 70 cents on a dollar. Add to this the fact that in many states, including ours, there's no legal protection from being fired for who you love. This, this is like affecting more and more people in our nation, isn't it? Hear the words of Jeremiah against the ideological <coughs> exceptionalism that he saw at work in Israel, denying certain realities that they were facing and living. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your doings and let me dwell with you in this place. He wants to dwell with his people. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. That's exceptional. Nothing bad can happen. We have the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your doings, if you truly act justly one with another, if you do not oppress the alien, the orphan, and the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own hurt, then I will dwell with you in this place. So like Israel in the time of Jeremiah, we can be blinded by our own form or version of, right, exceptionalism, American exceptionalism. If you want to get elected, <laughs> you do not want to deny American exceptionalism. Everybody like bows to it. We are the land of the free, we're the home of the brave, we're a city on a hill. And one could certainly say that we are exceptionally blessed as a nation by God. But from the point of view of the prophets, we cannot let an ideology of exceptionalism blind us to realities that don't fit our brand, our image. 
Uh, Julia told me this. She knows every verse of, her, of every um, song that's not on the radio. <laughs> the second verse of America the Beautiful, which is rarely sung, has this line in it. America, America, God mend thy every flaw. How's that for a campaign slogan? God mend thy every flaw. So this election, if it's doing anything, is shining the spotlight on some ugliness for all of us to see. Uh, economic injustice, racism, sexism, xenophobia, homophobia. I don't even like to use those words because they're just terms. They, they sound like buzzwords, you know. They sound like, oh, just buzzwords. We're just rattling off the isms. But what they represent these words is unrelenting pressure on real people. It's a pressure that holds people down. It, it's like strapping weights on a runner before a race. It's like putting sand in a NASCAR gas tank before the race. It's like putting a virus on the computer for the computer that's going to go up against the guy with the Russian last name who's the reigning chess uh, champion. The biblical word for this is cheating. It's, it's oppression, press, press, unrelenting pressure that a person lives with every day. I was talking to a member of our church who's black and the, uh, she was telling me about the, um, her neighborhood Facebook group and a woman on the neighborhood Facebook group posts, three guys with a hoodie are, are walking around the neighborhood. And then the comments that start flying. You know, it's always the comments on, on Facebook that you got to watch out for. I like, I like to Facebook hit and run. I make my posts and then I never look at the comments, you know. <laughs> but the comments start flying. People are talking about, oh, calling the police about, you know, I got my guns ready. And then assuming without any knowledge, without any evidence that the people in hoodies are young black men up to no good. Now, let's say... That was your neighborhood Facebook feed. And in this case, you were the parent of a young black man. How would you feel? If you feel face oppression, you feel it. We, we feel the pressures that are on us. But we don't all face it and we don't all feel it. We don't tend to see what we don't have to pay attention to. We have so many things to pay attention to. We don't tend to see what we don't have to pay attention to. So what's the prophetic response of the church in such a time? Three things, got to be three. Number one, prophets call us, the prophets call us to acknowledge realities we are tempted to deny. Just to acknowledge it to name it, to just call it out. Um, I got a, um, I was reading a little interview with, by uh, uh, Trevor Noah, who, who replaced uh, John Stewart in the uh, uh, Daily Show. And uh, Trevor Noah, young guy, he grew up in Johannesburg, South Africa. So he knows racism, right? And he was asked about American racism in this interview. And he says, America is... Um, What's scary is how many people don't realize that racism is written into your system in America. We had a very simple, blatant system in South Africa. 
you could see where the tumor was and you could cut it out. In America, this is a really powerful image, in America the tumor masquerades as an organ and you don't know which parts to cut out because it's hard to convince people that there's a problem in the first place. He's just observing what Jeremiah was observing about triumphalism and how it caused people to deny realities that they were swimming in. Um, so acknowledging these realities, for many of us, that's a call, first of all, just to listen. All of us need to listen to somebody. You know, if you're a woman, you get what sexism does, but not necessarily what minorities face. If you're gay, you don't necessarily know what African Americans live with and vice versa. You know, if you happen to be in my demographic, you may have a lot of listening to do. You know, the, uh, the rotating shelter that we're going to be uh, helping to staff, and we're doing this along with uh, St. Clair's and Temple Beth Emmett, so that's, that's worth doing in and of itself. Um, the rotating shelter, I found, is a, is a time uh, and a place to listen to people that you don't actually usually get to have a conversation with. You just pass them on the streets. You know, the, the people on the low end of the economic ladder have almost always suffered some pretty obvious injustice. Uh, they've either been sent to fight wars started by people who will never see combat, and they suffer invisible injuries as well as visible ones. Uh, they can't easily be healed, these injuries. Or they lost, uh, they're people who lost a home in the mortgage crisis and just didn't have enough family support in their family system to see them through. Or they suffer a, a mental illness that can be treated but don't have access to the good kind of psychiatric care. If you've ever, you know, been someone or loved someone who dealt with a serious mental illness, it's just like a serious disease. It takes like careful management of meds and all that. Or, or, or they were in a foster care system that none of us could possibly thrive in, and on and on. So at the rotating shelter, uh, if you do the overnight host thing, especially, there's time to sit down for dinner just as fellow human beings um, with people who are without a home in the winter season. And often without prying, just by asking, you know, where are you from? Where'd you grow up? they end up telling their stories. You, you don't normally ask, well, how did you become homeless? It's just like, where are you from? People want to tell their stories, and often they do. You know, there's legitimate debate over whether the best solutions to these problems are progressive or conservative or libertarian or socialist, but none of that means anything if we deny the realities that are all around us. And we will deny these realities if we don't pay our listening dues. So, secondly, the prophets call us to lament these realities so we can receive and work toward better ones. But you can't skip the lament part. In fact, there's an entire book that's described, attributed to Jeremiah the prophet, and the name of the book is Lamentations an important book in the Bible. We can't move beyond what we don't mourn. If we deny the sad, mad is all we have left. 
Um, interestingly, the lectionary reading, the set of readings that the liturgical churches use uh, every Sunday, uh, we have the psalm from the lectionary reading, but the New Testament, the gospel reading is from Luke, blessed are those who mourn, they are the ones who will be comforted. The, the one thing my wife's death taught me was you don't have to be afraid of mourning. I mean, I'd been through mourning before, but not at that raw kind of level. And I always beforehand like feared it, like, oh my God, I just can't picture myself going through that. But you know, uh, you don't have to be afraid of mourning. Uh, the Jewish custom, I, I like the Jewish tradition because they openly acknowledge as a communal experience mourning and grieving and they observe mourning. They have like little practices that allow them to mourn in a way that's obvious to others and one of those practices is simply to light a candle in your home on the death anniversary of someone you're missing or on, on their birthday. Um, to observe a time of mourning. So I would suggest that we light a candle on election day to mourn what this election is bringing to light. You know, just the beginning of the day, take a candle, light the candle. You know, there's a, there's a text in John 1, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. I mean, that's hope and that's lament and that's acknowledging reality all in one little, one little verse. The light shines in the darkness. There is darkness. It's shining in the darkness, but the darkness has not yet overcome it. Maybe that's something you could say as you light your candle on election day to mourn what this election is bringing to light in our society. Fasting is another like expression of mourning. You could fast from something on election day, not voting. You could fast from <laughs> solid foods on election day. You could fast from Facebook on election day. Something. St. Clair's um, is having a prayer vigil here uh, from 7 uh, a.m. to 7 p.m. You just come in and, and there'll be one or two people. They're using the St. Francis uh, Chapel. Is that cool little building just as you go out our doors to the right. So just a little, little building. There's a little chapel in there. It's the coolest place in the world. You could just pop in there anytime from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. I think they're having a noontime Eucharist and closing it at 6 with a little... Um, little uh, service, but anytime you're welcome to stop in and Blue Ocean people are more than, they're more than happy to see us. They'll probably fawn over you if they find out you're from uh, Blue Ocean, um, <laughs> just for some quiet uh, prayer that day. You know, it's, it's a beautiful thing when we make any moves to share each other's burdens. So when we acknowledge together realities that affect us unequally, that's like a beautiful thing. It's a gesture, it's a move, but it's a beautiful one. And when we mourn these realities together, it's something beautiful to God. And then third and finally, the, the prophets, the exile prophets in particular, call us to the vision of a better world that's marked by neighborliness. So uh, this is uh, all part of Jeremiah 7, that text I read. But listen to the vision, the positive vision that is behind uh, those words that I read about this God who just 
Like he wants to be with us. He's looking just like, let me in, just give me some space. I'd like to, I'd like to dwell with you, but you're, you're doing all this stuff that's just like driving me away. For if you truly amend your ways and your doings, if you truly act justly one with another, if you do not oppress the alien, the orphan, and the widow, our context, that might be many single moms in their families, or shed innocent blood in this place. And if you do not go after other gods to your own hurt, then I will dwell with you in this place. I like this vision because there's nothing fancy about the world that God wants to give us. I mean, if you, if you made a movie out of it, you wouldn't need uh, Steven Spielberg or George Lucas to do the movie of the world God wants to give us. It's a world mark, marked by what? Neighborliness. How we treat each other. You know, I moved into Julia's house a couple years ago now, and after I moved in, um, got some new neighbors <laughs> next door. And, uh, you know, in the neighborhood I live in, uh, neighbors hardly even say hi to each other or see each other or not sitting out on the front porch. And I'd met the wife, but not the husband. And I think it was uh, maybe the uh, first year of uh, Blue Ocean Faith in January. Maybe it was last year, but um, the, the, the uh, heating in this building went down. And I got a call early on a Sunday morning. What do we do? We got no heat in the building. And I'm feeling, I'm having a little pity party. Oh, the church is never happening. The church I used to be the pastor of. And I'm <laughs> renting our things. And, uh, I'm like, I'll, 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 get, I'll get our, you know, like whatever, uh, you know, uh, little space heaters we have. Have and you bring your space heaters and we'll suffer along together and and I'm I'm dragging these space heaters into the car with it and and the husband the, the new neighbor he was running he stopped and he said oh you don't have heat in your house and I said no it's actually my my church and the, the heat's off he said oh do you need more do you need more space heaters I've got some space heaters he, it was just the most lovely thing he was just being neighborly. And it felt so good. The listening that I mentioned earlier, that's just neighborliness. Uh, mourning the reality of, of, of oppressions that we ourselves don't suffer, mourn with those who mourn, that's just neighborliness. Uh, signing up to help at the rotating shelter, that's just neighborliness. Uh, what many of you are doing to help settle uh, refugees, it's just neighborliness. It's what the Hebrew prophets saw of the kind of land that God wants to, to dwell in. Now, what do we get when we multiply acts of neighborliness? We get a neighborhood. The human race could become a neighborhood that we want to live in. It's people lifting each other up. You know, uh, last year, in the first year of our, of our being together, we lost, um, we lost four members, uh, all, to, all to cancer. Caleb Brokaw, Matt Johnson, Joy Ferris, and Sue Eckstein. We're, I think we're coming up to the one-year anniversary of losing uh, Caleb, then Matt. And it's interesting to me that each one of these people were all in ways that perfectly fit their very different personalities, they were all adept in the art of neighborliness. 
You know, we've been talking about Matt Johnson, how he'd be, he'd be at a restaurant and he just would typically tip as much as the meal costs. And he had a number of wait staff that would be running after him saying, oh, you, you tipped on your credit card, but you left this cash. And, and he said, no, that's, that's like a tip. And you don't have to do that. And, and yeah, that's why it's a tip, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and, and he just did that all the time. Not because he's, he's rich, but he, he would say to Penny when Penny would object. <laughs> oh, I'm telling on you a little bit. Just at the beginning. Just at the beginning. Well, are you sure you want to do it? He said, you know, if we can't do that, we can't afford to eat out. And, and how we're doing compared to the people who are, who are serving us, of course we can do that. Um, uh, Caleb Brokaw was so, so known in his neighborhood as like the glue guy for the neighborhood of knowing people's names and figuring out ways to bring them together. And he, like, he was like the little pastor of that, of that neighborhood in Ypsilanti. So here's the thing. As we move toward that world of neighborliness, and there's nothing stopping us. Something magical and mysterious and transcendent begins to happen in that world that we're participating in. That world gets re-enchanted because it's a world in which God comes a little closer to dwell. The world gets re-enchanted, like in the, in the ancient world, I mean, people saw, saw spirits everywhere and, and rivers were alive and trees were alive and you, it, was, it was more fun in that world except for the diseases. <laughs> and then the scientific re revolution just purportedly explained everything and disenchanted the world and now we, we're living a long time but we got existential angst and we have anxiety and we have meaningless and like where's the wonder in the world? Where's the wonder in the world? Open your flipping eyes. I mean if you didn't have a certain kind of like a brain chemical going on to like cool it, I mean, you would think you're on LSD if you could just see, like, the world as it is, because it's a, it's a world that is charged with the glory of God. And God wants to dwell in human communities in the same way that he dwells in the glorious nature around us. And when we make these moves, we make that possible. So there's something deep in this better than just getting, you know, a B plus on our citizenship grading in elementary school. Okay. That was a good, powerful ending, that last sentence for this sermon. <laughs> uh, 